Part Two of the Epilogue of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Epilogue, Part Two. Colbert then broke in on the conversation suddenly and said to Aramis. Monsieur l'ambassadeur, shall we talk about business? D'Artagnan immediately withdrew from politeness. He directed his steps towards the fireplace, within hearing of what the king was about to say to Monsieur, who, evidently uneasy, had gone to him. The face of the king was animated. Upon his brow was stamped a strength of will, the expression of which already met no further contradiction in France, and was soon to meet no more in Europe. Monsieur, said the king to his brother, I am not pleased with Monsieur le Chevalier de Lorraine. You, who do him the honor to protect him, must advise him to travel for a few months. These words fell with the crush of an avalanche upon Monsieur, who adored his favorite, and concentrated all his affections in him. In what has the Chevalier been inconsiderate enough to displease your majesty? cried he, darting a furious look at Madame. "'I will tell you that when he is gone,' said the king, suavely. "'And also when Madame here shall have crossed over into England.' "'Madame! Madame! In England!' murmured Monsieur in amazement. "'In a week, brother,' continued the king, "'whilst we will go whither I will shortly tell you.' and the king turned on his heel, smiling in his brother's face, to sweeten, as it were, the bitter draught he had given him. During this time Colbert was talking with the Duc d'Almeida. "'Monsieur,' said Colbert to Aramis, "'this is the moment for us to come to an understanding. I have made your peace with the king, and I owed that clearly to a man of so much merit.' but as you have often expressed friendship for me, an opportunity presents itself for giving me a proof of it. You are, besides, more a Frenchman than a Spaniard. Shall we secure, answer me frankly, the neutrality of Spain, if we undertake anything against the United Provinces? Monsieur, replied Aramis, the interest of Spain is clear. To embroil Europe with the provinces would doubtless be our policy, but the King of France is an ally of the United Provinces. You are not ignorant, besides, that it would infer a maritime war, and that France is in no state to undertake this with advantage. Colbert, turning round at this moment, saw D'Artagnan, who was seeking some interlocutor, during this aside of the King and Monsieur. He called him, at the same time saying in a low voice to Aramis, "'We may talk openly with D'Artagnan, I suppose?' "'Oh, certainly,' said the ambassador. "'We were saying, Monsieur d'Almeida and I,' said Colbert, "'that a conflict with the United Provinces would mean a maritime war.' "'That's evident enough,' replied the musketeer. "'And what do you think of it, Monsieur d'Artagnan?' I think that to carry on such a war successfully, you must have very large land forces. What did you say? 
said Colbert, thinking he had ill understood him. "'Why such a large land army?' said Aramis. "'Because the king will be beaten by sea if he has not the English with him, and that when beaten by sea he will soon be invaded, either by the Dutch in his ports, or by the Spaniards by land.' "'And Spain neutral?' asked Aramis. "'Neutral as long as the king shall prove stronger,' rejoined D'Artagnan. Colbert admired that sagacity which never touched a question without enlightening it thoroughly. Aramis smiled, as he had long known that in diplomacy D'Artagnan acknowledged no superior. Colbert, who, like all proud men, dwelt upon his fantasy with a certainty of success, resumed the subject. "'Who told you, Monsieur D'Artagnan, that the king had no navy?' "'Oh, I take no heed of these details.' replied the captain. I am but an indifferent sailor. Like all nervous people, I hate the sea, and yet I have an idea that, with ships, France being a seaport with two hundred exits, we might have sailors. Colbert drew from his pocket a little oblong book divided into two columns. On the first were the names of vessels, on the other the figures recapitulating the number of cannon and men requisite to equip these ships. "'I have had the same idea as you,' said he to D'Artagnan, "'and I have had an account drawn up of the vessels we have all together. Thirty-five ships!' Thirty-five ships! Impossible!' cried D'Artagnan. "'Something like two thousand pieces of cannon,' said Colbert. That is what the king possesses at this moment. Of five and thirty vessels we can make three squadrons, but I must have five. Five! cried Aramis. They will be afloat before the end of the year, gentlemen. The king will have fifty ship of the line. We may venture on a contest with them, may we not? To build vessels, said D'Artagnan, is difficult but possible. As to arming them, how is that to be done? In France there are neither foundries nor military docks. Bah! replied Colbert in a bantering tone. I have planned all that this year and a half past. Did you not know it? Do you know Monsieur D'Amfreville? D'Amfreville, replied D'Artagnan. No. He is a man I have discovered. He has a specialty. He is a man of genius. He knows how to set men to work. It is he who has cast cannon and cut the words of Bourgogne. And then, Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, you may not believe what I am going to tell you, but I have a still further idea. Oh, Monsieur, said Aramis, civilly, I always believe you. Calculating upon the character of the Dutch, our allies, I said to myself, they are merchants, they are friendly with the king, they will be happy to sell to the king what they fabricate for themselves, then the more we buy, ah, I must add this, I have Forant. Do you know Forant, d'Artagnan? Colbert, in his warmth, forgot himself. He called the captain simply d'Artagnan, as the king did, but the captain only smiled at it. No, replied he. I do not know him. That is another man I have discovered, with a genius for buying. 
This Ferrant has purchased for me three hundred fifty thousand pounds of iron in balls, two hundred thousand pounds of powder, twelve cargoes of northern timber, matches, grenades, pitch, tar, I know not what, with a saving of seven per cent upon what all those articles would cost me fabricated in France. That is a capital and quaint idea, replied D'Artagnan to have Dutch cannonballs cast which will return to the Dutch. "'Is it not with loss, too?' And Colbert laughed aloud. He was delighted with his own joke. "'Still further,' added he, "'these same Dutch are building for the king, at this moment, six vessels after the model of the best of their name. Détouche. Ah, perhaps you don't know Détouche?' "'No, monsieur.' He is a man who has a sure glance to discern, when a ship is launched, what are the defects and qualities of that ship. That is valuable, observe. Nature is truly whimsical. Well, this Détouche appeared to me to be a man likely to prove useful in marine affairs, and he is superintending the construction of six vessels of seventy-eight guns, which the provinces are building for His Majesty." It results from this, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, that the king, if he wished to quarrel with the provinces, would have a very pretty fleet. Now, you know better than anybody else if the land army is efficient. D'Artagnan and Aramis looked at each other, wondering at the mysterious labors this man had undertaken in so short a time. Colbert understood them, and was touched by this best of flatteries. If we, in France, were ignorant of what was going on, said D'Artagnan, out of France still less must be known. That is what I told Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, said Colbert, that Spain promising its neutrality, England helping us. If England assists you, said Aramis, I promise the neutrality of Spain. I take you at your word. Colbert hastened to reply with his blunt bonhomie. And, a propos of Spain, you have not the golden fleece, Monsieur d'Almeida. I heard the king say the other day that he should like to see you wear the grand cordon of St. Michael. Aramis bowed. Oh, thought D'Artagnan, and Porthos is no longer here. What ells of ribbons would there be for him in these largesses? Dear Porthos. Monsieur d'Artagnan, resumed Colbert, between us two, you will have, I wager, an inclination to lead your musketeers into Holland. Can you swim? And he laughed like a man in high good humor. Like an eel, replied d'Artagnan. Ah, but there are some bitter passages of canals and marshes yonder, Monsieur d'Artagnan and the best swimmers are sometimes drowned there. "'It is my profession to die for his majesty,' said the musketeer. "'Only, as it is seldom in war that much water is met with without a little fire, I declare to you beforehand that I will do my best to choose fire. I am getting old. Water freezes me, but fire warms, Monsieur Colbert.' and D'Artagnan looked so handsome, still in quasi-juvenile strength, as he pronounced these words, 
that Colbert, in his turn, could not help admiring him. D'Artagnan perceived the effect he had produced. He remembered that the best tradesman is he who fixes a high price upon his goods when they are valuable. He prepared his price in advance. "'So then,' said Colbert, "'we go into Holland?' "'Yes,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Only—' "'Only?' said Monsieur Colbert. "'Only,' repeated D'Artagnan, "'there lurks in everything the question of interest, the question of self-love. It is a very fine title, that of Captain of the Musketeers. But observe this. We have now the King's Guards and the military household of the King.' A captain of musketeers ought to command all that, and then he would absorb a hundred thousand livres a year for expenses. "'Well, but do you suppose the king would haggle with you?' said Colbert. "'Eh, monsieur, you have not understood me,' replied D'Artagnan, sure of carrying his point. "'I was telling you that I, an old captain, formerly chief of the king's guard,' having precedence of the Marechaux of France. I saw myself one day in the trenches with two other equals, the captain of the guards and the colonel commanding the Swiss. Now at no price will I suffer that. I have old habits, and I will stand or fall by them. Colbert felt this blow, but he was prepared for it. I have been thinking of what you said just now, replied he. "'About what, monsieur?' "'We were speaking of canals and marshes in which people are drowned.' "'Well?' "'Well, if they are drowned, it is for want of a boat, a plank, or a stick.' "'Of a stick, however short it may be,' said D'Artagnan. "'Exactly,' said Colbert. "'And therefore I never heard of an instance of a marechal of France being drowned.' D'Artagnan became very pale with joy, and in a not very firm voice. "'People would be very proud of me in my country,' said he, "'if I were a marechal of France. But a man must have commanded an expedition in chief to obtain the baton.' "'Monsieur,' said Colbert, "'here is, in this pocket-book which you will study, a plan of campaign you will have to lead a body of troops to carry out in the next spring. D'Artagnan took the book tremblingly, and his fingers meeting those of Colbert, the minister pressed the hand of the musketeer loyally. Monsieur, said he, we had both a revenge to take, one over the other. I have begun. It is now your turn. I will do you justice, monsieur replied D'Artagnan, and implore you to tell the king that the first opportunity that shall offer, he may depend upon a victory, or to behold me dead, or both. "'Then I will have the fleur-de-lis for your marechal's baton prepared immediately,' said Colbert. On the morrow, Aramis, who was setting out for Madrid, to negotiate the neutrality of Spain, came to embrace D'Artagnan at his hotel." Let us love each other for four, said D'Artagnan. We are now but two. And you will, perhaps, never see me again, dear D'Artagnan, said Aramis, if you knew how I have loved you. I am old, 
I am extinct. Ah, I am almost dead. My friend, said D'Artagnan, you will live longer than I shall. Diplomacy commands you to live, but for my part, honor condemns me to die. Bah, such men as we are, Monsieur le Marechal, said Aramis, only die satisfied with joy in glory. Ah, replied D'Artagnan, with a melancholy smile, I assure you, Monsieur le Duc, I feel very little appetite for either. They once more embraced, and, two hours after, separated forever. The Death of D'Artagnan Contrary to that which generally happens, whether in politics or morals, each kept his promises and did honour to his engagements. The king recalled Monsieur de Guiche, and banished Monsieur le Chevalier de Lorraine, so that Monsieur became ill in consequence. Madame set out for London, where she applied herself so earnestly to make her brother, Charles II, acquire a taste for the political counsels of Mademoiselle de Carouel, that the alliance between England and France was signed, and the English vessels, ballasted by a few millions of French gold, made a terrible campaign against the fleets of the United Provinces. Charles II had promised Mademoiselle de Carouel a little gratitude for her good counsels. He made her Duchess of Portsmouth. Colbert had promised the king vessels, munitions, victories. He kept his word, as is well known. At length Aramis, upon whose promises there was least dependence to be placed, wrote Colbert the following letter, on the subject of the negotiations which he had undertaken at Madrid. Monsieur Colbert, I have the honour to expedite to you the R. P. Oliva, general ad interim of the Society of Jesus, my provisional successor. The Reverend Father will explain to you, Monsieur Colbert, that I preserve to myself the direction of all the affairs of the order which concern France and Spain, but that I am not willing to retain the title of general, which would throw too high a sidelight on the progress of the negotiations with which His Catholic Majesty wishes to entrust me. I shall resume that title, by the command of His Majesty, when the labours I have undertaken in concert with you, for the great glory of God and His Church, shall be brought to a good end. The R. P. Oliva will inform you likewise, monsieur, of the consent his Catholic Majesty gives to the signature of a treaty which assures the neutrality of Spain in the event of a war between France and the United Provinces. This consent will be valid even if England, instead of being active, should satisfy herself with remaining neutral. As for Portugal, of which you and I have spoken, monsieur, I can assure you it will contribute with all its resources to assist the most Christian king in his war. I beg you, monsieur Colbert, to preserve your friendship, and also to believe in my profound attachment, and to lay my respect at the feet of his most Christian majesty. Signed, Le Duc d'Almeida. Aramis had performed more than he had promised, it remained to be seen how the king, Monsieur Colbert, and D'Artagnan would be faithful to each other. In the spring, as Colbert had predicted, the land army entered on its campaign. It preceded, in magnificent order, 
the court of Louis the Fourteenth, who, setting out on horseback, surrounded by carriages filled with ladies and courtiers, conducted the elite of his kingdom to this sanguinary fete. The officers of the army, it is true, had no other music save the artillery of the Dutch forts, but it was enough for a great number who found in this war honour, advancement, fortune, or death. Monsieur d'Artagnan set out commanding a body of twelve thousand men, cavalry and infantry, with which he was ordered to take the different places which form knots of that strategic network called La Frise. Never was an army conducted more gallantly to an expedition. The officers knew that their leader, prudent and skilful as he was brave, would not sacrifice a single man, nor yield an inch of ground without necessity. He had the old habits of war, to live upon the country, keeping his soldiers singing and the enemy weeping. The captain of the king's musketeers well knew his business. Never were opportunities better chosen, coup de main better supported, errors of the besieged more quickly taken advantage of. The army commanded by D'Artagnan took twelve small places within a month. He was engaged in besieging the thirteenth, which had held out five days. D'Artagnan caused the trenches to be opened without appearing to suppose that these people would ever allow themselves to be taken. The pioneers and laborers were, in the army of this man, a body full of ideas and zeal, because their commander treated them like soldiers, knew how to render their work glorious, and never allowed them to be killed if he could help it. It should have been seen with what eagerness the marshy glebes of Holland were turned over. Those turf-heaps, mounds of potter's clay, melted at the word of the soldiers like butter in the frying-pans of Friesland housewives. Monsieur d'Artagnan dispatched a courier to the king to give him an account of the last success, which redoubled the good humour of his majesty and his inclination to amuse the ladies. These victories of Monsieur d'Artagnan gave so much majesty to the prince— that Madame de Montespan no longer called him anything but Louis the Invincible, so that Mademoiselle de la Valliere, who only called the king Louis the Victorious, lost much of his majesty's favour. Besides, her eyes were frequently red, and to an invincible nothing is more disagreeable than a mistress who weeps while everything is smiling round her, the star of Mademoiselle de la Valliere was being drowned in clouds and tears. But the gaiety of Madame de Montespan redoubled with the successes of the king, and consoled him for every other unpleasant circumstance. It was to D'Artagnan the king owed this, and his majesty was anxious to acknowledge these services. He wrote to Monsieur Colbert. Monsieur Colbert! We have a promise to fulfil with Monsieur d'Artagnan, who so well keeps his. This is to inform you that the time has come for performing it. All provisions for this purpose you shall be furnished with in due time. Louis. In consequence of this, Colbert, detaining d'Artagnan's envoy, placed in the hands of that messenger a letter from himself and a small coffer of ebony inlaid with gold not very important in appearance, but which, without doubt, was very heavy, 
as a guard of five men was given to the messenger to assist him in carrying it. These people arrived before the place which D'Artagnan was besieging towards daybreak, and presented themselves at the lodgings of the general. They were told that Monsieur D'Artagnan, annoyed by a sortie which the governor, an artful man, had made the evening before, and in which the works had been destroyed and seventy-seven men killed, and the reparation of the breaches commenced, had just gone with twenty companies of grenadiers to reconstruct the works. M. Colbert's envoy had orders to go and seek M. d'Artagnan, wherever he might be, and at whatever hour of the day or night. He directed his course, therefore, towards the trenches, followed by his escort, all on horseback. They perceived M. d'Artagnan in the open plain, with his gold-laced hat, his long cane, and gilt cuffs. He was biting his white moustache, and wiping off, with his left hand, the dust which the passing balls threw up from the ground they ploughed so near him. They also saw, amidst this terrible fire, which filled the air with whistling hisses, officers handling the shovel, soldiers rolling barrows, and vast fascines, rising by being either carried or dragged by from ten to twenty men, covered the front of the trench, reopened to the centre, by this extraordinary effort of the general. In three hours all was reinstated. D'Artagnan began to speak more mildly, and he became quite calm when the captain of the pioneers approached him, hat in hand, to tell him that the trench was again in proper order. This man had scarcely finished speaking when a ball took off one of his legs, and he fell into the arms of D'Artagnan. The latter lifted up his soldier, and quietly, with soothing words, carried him into the trench, amidst the enthusiastic applause of the regiments. From that time it was no longer a question of valour. The army was delirious. Two companies stole away to the advance post, which they instantly destroyed. When their comrades, restrained with great difficulty by D'Artagnan, saw them lodged upon the bastions, they rushed forward likewise, and soon a furious assault was made upon the counterscarp, upon which depended the safety of the place. D'Artagnan perceived there was only one means left of checking his army, to take the place. He directed all his force to the two breaches, where the besieged were busy in repairing. The shock was terrible. Eighteen companies took part in it, and D'Artagnan went with the rest, within half-cannon-shot of the place, to support the attack by Echelon. The cries of the Dutch, who were being poignarded upon their guns by D'Artagnan's grenadiers, were distinctly audible. The struggle grew fiercer with the despair of the governor, who disputed his position foot by foot. D'Artagnan, to put an end to the affair, and to silence the fire which was unceasing, sent a fresh column, which penetrated like a very wedge, and he soon perceived upon the ramparts, through the fire, the terrified flight of the besieged, pursued by the besiegers. At this moment the general, breathing freely and full of joy, heard a voice behind him saying, "'Monsieur, if you please, from Monsieur Colbert.' He broke the seal of the letter which contained these words. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan, the king commands me to inform you that he has nominated you Marechal of France as a reward for your magnificent services, 
and the honor you do to his arms. The king is highly pleased, monsieur, with the captures you have made. He commands you, in particular, to finish the siege you have commenced, with good fortune to you, and success for him. D'Artagnan was standing with a radiant countenance and sparkling eye. He looked up to watch the progress of his troops upon the walls, still enveloped in red and black volumes of smoke. "'I have finished,' replied he to the messenger. "'The city will have surrendered in a quarter of an hour.' He then resumed his reading. "'The coffret, Monsieur d'Artagnan, is my own present. You will not be sorry to see that, whilst you warriors are drawing the sword to defend the king, I am moving the Pacific arts to ornament a present worthy of you. I commend myself to your friendship, Monsieur le Marechal, and beg you to believe in mine. Colbert. D'Artagnan, intoxicated with joy, made a sign to the messenger, who approached with his coffret in his hands. But at the moment the Marechal was going to look at it, a loud explosion resounded from the ramparts and called his attention towards the city. "'It is strange,' said D'Artagnan, "'that I don't yet see the king's flag on the walls, or hear the drums beat the chamade.' He launched three hundred fresh men, under a high-spirited officer, and ordered another breach to be made. Then, more tranquilly, he turned towards the coffret, which Colbert's envoy held out to him. It was his treasure. He had won it. D'Artagnan was holding out his hand to open the coffret, when a ball from the city crushed the coffret in the arms of the officer, struck D'Artagnan full in the chest, and knocked him down upon a sloping heap of earth, whilst the fleur-de-lis baton, escaping from the broken box, came rolling under the powerless hand of the marechal. D'Artagnan endeavoured to raise himself. It was thought he had been knocked down without being wounded. A terrible cry broke from the group of terrified officers. The marechal was covered with blood. The pallor of death ascended slowly to his noble countenance. Leaning upon the arms held out on all sides to receive him, he was able once more to turn his eyes toward the place, and to distinguish the white flag at the crest of the principal bastion. His ears, already deaf to the sounds of life, caught feebly the rolling of the drum which announced the victory. Then, clasping in his nerveless hand the baton, ornamented with its fleur-de-lis, he cast on it his eyes, which had no longer the power of looking upwards towards heaven, and fell back, murmuring strange words, which appeared to the soldiers cabalistic words which had formerly represented so many things on earth, and which none but the dying man any longer comprehended. Athos, Porthos, farewell till we meet again. Aramis, adieu forever. Of the four valiant men whose history we have related, there now remained but one. Heaven had taken to itself three noble souls. This is the end of the man in the iron mask. This is the last text in the series. Thank you for listening.